0: I want to talk to you this morning about the obvious subject. What subject do I want to talk to you about? The resurrection. It's Easter, right? right? Of course. But I want to talk to you from a, a perspective that speaks to our lives and how we live, if you will, in the light of the resurrection. In other words, what difference does a resurrection make? Given that it was a historical event... What difference does it make, really, in my day-to-day life? Should it affect me? I want to talk about having what I, what I would describe as a, a resurrection worldview. In other words, I, I look at the world through the glasses of the resurrection. What implications are there for me in how I live my life? Most of you are aware that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the cornerstone of biblical Christianity. If you can disprove the resurrection, we don't have a leg to stand on. This is all an exercise in futility. It's ludicrous. Oh, we can get together and we can sing some songs and we can hug each other and we can try to encourage each other. But, but if Christ is not raised, it's all to no end, Really? It's just a futeless exercise. But if he has been raised, it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. Down through the, the millennia, really, and numbers of people have tried to disprove the resurrection because they know. They know that if they can disprove the resurrection, they can disprove Christianity. And every single time where people have been intellectually honest enough. To scrutinize, to study, to examine the facts, the historical facts, they've come away admitting, yes, it did happen. And the vast majority of themselves have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Wonderful miracle. As we talk this morning, I want to ask you this question How shall we live? How shall we live in the light of the resurrection? The biblical account of Jesus' passion, his suffering, his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. The biblical account is not a prolonged account. It's not an account that's complicated. It's not embellished. The Bible doesn't try to explain it or defend it. The Bible just declares it. The Bible just let the facts speak for themselves believe it or not well I choose not to believe it well because you choose not to believe it doesn't make it any less true examine the facts be intellectually honest enough to do that before you take such a stand so in the light of the resurrection how should we live well let's just look at some of the facts as the four gospel writers set them forward. Starting in Matthew's gospel in chapter 12, Matthew records that Jesus said he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Later, in chapter 16 of Matthew, he said that he would suffer and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Betrayed by Judas, he was seized placed under arrest, pushed hurriedly through several illegal trials, and declared guilty, first of blasphemy, next of treason. And finally, Matthew says, all the disciples left him and fled, alone and forsaken. He endured the torture of scourging, the humiliation of insults and mockery, and the agony of that march to Golgotha. The horrors of the crucifixion followed, leaving him suspended for six excruciating hours on that cross, the last three of which, Mark says, were spent in eerie darkness that fell over the whole land. By three o'clock that afternoon, he uttered his final words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then all four gospel writers record this. He died. Two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, took his body down from that cross, prepared it for burial, and placed it in the garden, in a new tomb. Because he had predicted, after three days I will rise again, the chief priests and the Pharisees had the tomb secured with a large stone, a seal set on the stone, and a body of men sent to guard the site. Guarded and sealed, the tomb was silent as the body of Jesus remained lifeless, untouched, And unseen until the early hours of the morning on the first day of the week. Before dawn, a miraculous event occurred. Bodily, silently, victoriously, Jesus arose from death. In resurrection form, he passed through the stone, leaving the linen burial wrapping still intact, John records. And when astonished people visited the site that morning, they found the stone rolled away and the body gone. And then they were asked by angels. Two men were told they were angels. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Can you imagine the electricity of that moment? They had come fully expecting to see the tomb intact. They had forgotten his words. They were people of little faith. And when they come, the stone is rolled away. And they hear these words, He's not here. He has risen. Can you imagine the excitement and the joy, the bewilderment, all this whole spectrum of emotion that affected those disciples? Beloved, He has risen. He has risen. He has risen. And we're here today to remember that, to celebrate it. We gather every day to celebrate, to remember the fact that He is risen. Jesus is alive. And in the light of His resurrection, how shall we live? May I suggest to you, first and foremost, that we should be people who live hopefully. Hopefully. We should be people who have a confident expectation as to that which is unseen and future. We have a hope, and that hope is based on Jesus' resurrection. He's promised us the resurrection, the redemption of our own bodies, a whole redemption of all of creation. He says in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation groans, waiting the redemption of our bodies, the revelation of the sons of God. We have a tremendous, tremendous hope and confidence. But it doesn't just extend to the resurrection of our bodies. It extends to all of our life. Let me just read to you Paul's words in Romans 8, verse 24. He says, "...for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have... We wait for it patiently. In other words, biblical hope is confidence. It's not a weak wishing. Like we say, well, I hope so. No. It is a confident expectation of that which I don't yet see and which is yet future. The things that he's told me as I read his book, I have this confident expectation. Indeed, In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the writer says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for. I am absolutely sure of what I hope for, of this confidence that I have. Hope is not only living with a confident expectation of the future. Hope is also the happy anticipation of good. How many people have a happy anticipation of good in their life? The scriptures tell us we have a basis for that. Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 8, that in all things, not most things, not some things, not just the good things, not the easy things, but in all things, now notice this, God works for the what? The good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He goes on to tell us that God's purpose, His will for us, is good, pleasing, and perfect. He has, his, he has our, our very best in mind. He wants to do things in our life that just make our heads spin. Good things. I have a happy anticipation of good. I wake up in the morning, I say, okay, Lord, it's you and me today. Here we go. I don't know what you've got on your agenda. I know what I have, but here we go. It's going to be a good day, Lord. It's going to be a good day. Do you have a happy anticipation of good? Do you live hopefully in the face of that which is unseen and future? Or do you live fearfully, anxious? Oh, oh, what's going to happen today? Oh, I'm so afraid. Are you conditioned to live that way? Or based on the resurrection, are you conditioned to live hopefully? God's promise. You have a hope. Not afraid. His will for me is good, pleasing, and perfect. That's my hope. That's my confident expectation. Peter writes in his first epistle, he says, chapter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth. Now notice this. Into a living hope. It's not something stagnant. It's a living hope. It's a dynamism to our life. New birth into a living, confident expectation of the future. I'm not afraid of the future. I'm looking forward to the future. It's a certain happy expectation, anticipation of good You say, well, that's easy for you to say. You don't know my life. You don't know mine either. You don't want to be a pastor. Trust me. (laughs) But based on the resurrection, I understand God's purposes are good. It didn't look good that Friday. The disciples, when they took Jesus off the cross, they thought, it's all over. It's all over. They had no hope. They had no confident expectation of the future. They had no happy anticipation of good. They all scattered. They were hiding. They were threatened. They were afraid. That was Friday. But as the saying goes, Sunday was coming with the resurrection. And when they they saw Him, when He appeared to them, amazing, amazing. And slowly, slowly, they began to believe. Slowly, hope began to be built into them. A living hope. Beloved, are you living hopefully? Are you learning to live hopefully? Or has anxiety gripped your life and and fear? Your circumstances have have contributed to a demise of any sense of hope. Have you given up? Or are you living hopefully? And because I have hope, I can live joyfully. Yes, joyfully. You see, the Apostle Paul writes in the 12th chapter of Romans, in the 12th verse, he says, In hope, rejoice. As long as I have hope, as long as I have hope, I can be joyful, can't I? I can be joyful. As long as I have a confident expectation of a future, if I, as long as I have a happy anticipation of good, I have a basis to live joyfully. If I don't have that, there's no real basis to live joyfully. You can tell me all day long, rejoice. I say, why? You rejoice. There's no basis to rejoice. There's no reason to rejoice. It's all futile. It's all empty. It's all frustrating. Boy, that, that sentiment flies in the face of everything, just as a human being, everything that I long for. Isn't that true? I want to live my life as if there were purpose and meaning in it, that my life counted. I want to be able to say, I want to be able to live my life as if there was hope. I don't want to live futilely, fatalistically. I don't want to live an empty life. Do you? But most people are. You have, yes, the average person out there, and even tragically, many Christians today, and you say, are you living hopefully? Are you living joyfully? Yeah. Love it, that ought not to be that ought not to be. Listen to what James says in James chapter one, familiar passage to many if you 've read the Bible he says he says that you and I can consider it now notice this pure joy. Well, when can I consider it pure joy when ever Whenever I face trials of many kinds. Wait a minute. You're telling me that I'm supposed to consider it pure joy when I face trials? Most people don't have a category for that, do they? What's our typical response to trials? Oh, joy? Oh, joy, another trial. Do you look forward to them? Do you have a happy, confident expectation, anticipation of trials coming in your life tomorrow? Or do you go, oh man, I hope nothing happens tomorrow. Isn't that true? No, he says you can consider it pure joy when you face trials of all kinds. Pure joy, unadulterated joy, delirious joy. <laughs> right. How can I do that? Why? Because I know. Now note this, please. Because I know that God is doing... What kind of work in me? A uh, Good work. He's doing a good work. Am I confident of that? He's doing a good work in me. So that I may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How many people want to be mature? Oh, gosh, not everybody. Let me try it one more time. How many people want to be mature? All right, we got more hands, but still not everybody. Mature, complete, not lacking anything. How many parents do we have? Parents, do you want to see your kids grow up to be mature, complete, not lacking anything? Do you want them to to fulfill every every, uh, potential that they have in their life? To be mature. Now, in order for them to grow up to be mature, complete, not lacking anything, how do you contribute to that? You say, no, honey, be mature. No? Gabe, what do you do? How many know, how many know, that you as parents bring trials of all kinds into your kids' lives. (laughs) Those trials, you have to know as a parent, those trials are designed, what, to build them up, to give them a hope. You put them on a path, you're training them, you're teaching them, so they can be mature, complete, not lacking anything if you don't give them tasks to do, trials, if you don't stress them, if you don't whip them, spank them, strike that from the tape. (laughs) You're you're not going to raise up kids that are like that. Mature, complete, not lacking anything. Paul says in another place that we are being conformed to the likeness, to the image of who? Jesus. Mature, complete, not lacking anything. That's, who we're, that's who God's, God's whole purpose. His whole purpose in saving us is not just for us. It's not that we just go to heaven. He's saving us for himself. So we have a relationship with him. The parallel is just as true for parents. Parents, do you hope to have a a good relationship with your kids? You want your kids to have a good relationship with you? You want to be able to talk? You want to be able to relate? Yeah. Maybe your kids are gone off someplace. And you're hoping to see them redeemed. Brought back into relationship with you. The whole human race has gone off in rebellion. And God is saving us for relationship with Him. To make us like His Son, so that we can have complete unhindered relationship. First Peter chapter one, verses six through nine, Peter writes, I can greatly rejoice, greatly rejoice, though now for a little while I have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that my faith Why do trials come? Why do difficulties come? How many know that suffering is inevitable? Trials are inevitable. But misery doesn't have to be. I can rejoice. Why? Because I have a hope. I have hope. And that hope tells me that God's at work in my life. God is at work in my life and He's at work through my life for His purpose to make me complete. Mature, not lacking anything. And Peter says, These trials have come so that my faith, which is of more value, worth more than gold. We put a great value on gold, don't we? But my faith is even more valuable. That my faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, honor, and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. How many want to know that your faith is a genuine faith? I hope so. I hope we would say, not just presume, well, okay, I've genuinely... How do you know? Because my faith is being tested, is being tried, is being proven, so that it will result in glory, honor, and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ when He comes again. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled, notice this, filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I am? He ought to be. He ought to be in the midst of trials and suffering for what He's doing, refining your faith, making you whole, making your life a life of substance. You're not an empty suit anymore not a faker, a liar. God's at work. That is cause, beloved, for rejoicing. He is doing a good thing. Is God punishing me? He's doing a good thing. Does God not love me? He's doing a good thing. Why is this happening? He's doing a good thing. I have this happy anticipation of good. Good. That's what it means to be hopeful. But it's based on the truth of the word. And the truth of the word is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Philippians 4.4, 4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord most of the time. Did I get that one wrong too? Rejoice in the Lord what? You suppose he's serious? He's just using hyperbole. He's just, it's just an expression, right? Paul doesn't really mean it always. Most of the time. What do you think? Do we rejoice in the Lord even most of the time? No. Most of the time we're complaining. Most of the time we're whining. Most of the time we're dour and moping. Oh, poor me. You don't know the trouble I've seen. No, he says rejoice in the Lord always. In fact, this is so important. He says, I'm going to repeat myself. Rejoice. We just sang the song earlier ago. Rejoice in spite of the circumstances. Oh, that's the challenge, isn't it? In spite of the circumstances. Beloved, I'm here to tell you right now, you will not rejoice in spite of the circumstances unless you have a living hope. Unless you are confident in God, in what He's doing in your life, your circumstances may make no rhyme, no reason to you. You can't figure them out. You think the craziest things are happening to you, but you say, "You know what, God? My hope's in You, and I'm going to rejoice in this thing because I know You're going to do. You're doing a great work." Somebody can say, "Amen." amen. First Thessalonians five sixteen, Paul writes this: "Be joyful most of the time." Oh, I did it again. Be joyful always, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul writes in the 14th in cha- chapter of Romans, he says, The kingdom of God is not characterized by mundane things like we reduce it to just eating and drinking. And he says the kingdom of God is characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy. In other words, my life should be characterized by what? righteousness, peace, and joy. Is there a basis for that? What do you think? Is there a basis for my life being characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy? What's the basis of that? The resurrection. The fact that I have a living hope. Am I making sense? Some of you? Okay, good. I'm glad. Beloved, because of the hope that we have in Jesus, we should be, we should be, note this please, The most joy-filled people on the face of the earth. Think about that. Years ago, I was browsing through an old bookstore, and I found a book. The title fascinated me. The Happiest People on Earth. I thought, ooh, that sounds like a great book. I want to get that book. I want to read who the happiest people on the face of the earth are. And guess what? I began to read it, and guess who the happiest people on the face of the earth should be? Christians. (laughs) I thought, I are one. I are one of the happiest people on earth. Give evidence of it. Give evidence of it. The writer to the Hebrews says this. Have you ever heard this? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Here's where it comes from. It comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix them. Don't move them. On who he is, what he's done the hope that we have in Him. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who Himself is the author and perfecter of our faith. I didn't generate my faith, and I'm not going to perfect my faith. That's His job. He's the author and perfecter of my faith. Who for the joy set before Him, who for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, disregarding its shame, And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus teaches us to have through vision. I see through my present circumstance. There's a joy set before me. There's a joy set before me. Psalm 112 says, Light arises in the midst of the darkness for the upright. What a marvelous, marvelous word. Are you living joyfully? Are you living hopefully? Are you living joyfully? Third, are you living faithfully? I can live faithfully. Faithfully in two senses. The first, in the sense of trusting in the Lord, believing in the Lord, depending upon him. Really? Not just saying that I do, actually doing it. Actually trust him. Proverbs 3 5 says, trust in the Lord with most of your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Did it again. Trust the Lord with what? All of your heart. Oh, man, that is a scary thing to do, isn't it? Trust you? Is that, what does that mean? It means that you read his book and you do exactly what he says. Oh, sometimes some of this stuff is just counterintuitive, isn't it? It doesn't seem to make sense. I much better do what I think. You see, I see my circumstances. I understand my circumstances better than you do because I'm living them, right? So I'm going to lean on my own understanding no, 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 no. Trust in Him with your whole heart. Everything that you got. Trust in Him. If you live faithfully, you'll never live faithfully unless you learn to really trust Him. Unless you learn to depend upon Him. Hebrews eleven six. 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists. At the very minimum, he must believe that He exists. I believe I believe and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him See it's not enough just to believe you got to seek him And he will reward you He'll bless your life In psalm 62 The psalmist phrases it this way. I love this passage Find rest O my soul in drugs, <laughs> booze, entertainment. Ah, I just had a hard day. I got to come home and rest, turn on the boob tube. I got to come home and have a drink. I got to smoke a joint. You fill in the blank. I had a hard day. I'm going to come home and I got to get on the computer and check my email. That's where I find my rest. That's where I rest. He doesn't say that. He says, find rest, O my soul, in God alone. That's hard to do. I want to be entertained. I want to just be entertained. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. God says, come here. Be still. Know that. Get quiet. Let me refresh you. We're too busy, 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 busy. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. To live faithfully is to trust in him, believe in him, depend on him. But also, the flip side of that coin is to be trusted. If I'm going to live faithfully, then I must be able to be trusted. I must be reliable. I must be faithful. If you read the 25th chapter of Matthew's gospel, we looked at this last time, the parable of the talents. There were three servants who were entrusted with a certain amount of money, right? A certain measure of, of, of talents was how they named money in those days. Well, you could you could say whatever you trusted with. Two of them were faithful and were commended. The third one was not faithful. And Jesus characterized him as being what? Wicked and lazy. It's not enough to say I believe in God, but I, I, I demonstrate that by being faithful with whatever He's entrusted to me. He's entrusted a life to me. He's entrusted salvation to me. He's entrusted relationships to me. He's entrusted time to me. He's entrusted abilities and talents. Strength. Am I proving faithful with those things? Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. He says, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. There is going to be a day when we all stand before the judgment seat and He to say, what did you do with what I gave you? God bless you. Faithful living leads to prayerful living. Note this. Faithful living leads to a life that is a prayerful life. Again, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Pray continually, for this is God's will for you in Christ. Pray continually. How in the world can someone pray continually? It seems impossible. But he says to do it. Jesus tells us how to pray. You recall, his disciples asked him, they said, Teach us how to pray. They made that inquiry because they saw a connection between his life, the effect of his life, and they said, you know, he prays a lot. <laughs> he prays continually, and they see this effect. So they wanted the same effect. They said, teach us how to pray. And he gave them a model prayer, didn't he? What was the prayer he gave them? The Our Father. Now, I grew up Roman Catholic, and this is not, I'm not disparaging Roman Catholicism, so if you're Catholic, please don't take offense. I grew up Roman Catholic. I was taught to pray that prayer as a rote, memorized prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hell be in the name of the kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. It was a perfunctory prayer. That's how all of us prayed. It was a joke, it was a mockery. We didn't understand prayer, we didn't understand its purpose. We were taught to pray as a penance. Later on, I thought about that. I said, "Well, that doesn't make sense. Jesus gave us that prayer, not just to praise as a perfunctory prayer. He gave us, it's a model, six parts. He means for us to meditate on all six parts. And it addresses every area of life. You can pray continually. Imagine that. How does it start? Father. 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 Can you think of God as your father? A lot of people can't. A lot of people can't relate to God as a father, especially today. Absent fathers, abusive fathers, drunkards, you name it. I've talked to so many people over the years who said, I cannot relate to God as a father. And so I say to them, well, "Look, I understand. So let's do this. Paint a picture for me. Paint a picture for me of the best father you could ever hope to have. And they would stop and think, and then they would begin to tell me what their dream father would be like. I said, God, that's great. But you know that God is even a better father than that? So you can imagine, you can understand a father. 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 He's the best father you and I could ever have. Meditate on that for a couple hours. See where he takes you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Worship. Could you spend some time worshiping him, praising him, adoring him? I think so. Pray continuously. In Luke chapter 18, Luke records that Jesus told his disciples a parable. This is important. Verse 1. To show them that they should always pray and not give up. How many have ever been tempted to give up? How many have given up? <laughs> yeah, all of us. I've given up. You start to pray and you're just, I'm committed. I'm committed. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna keep praying every day. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna. But then nothing changes. Nothing changes. And we're tempted to what? Quit praying. Doesn't make any difference. Why pray? Nothing changes. The reason nothing changes is because God's teaching you not to give up. Don't quit go back and look at Luke 18.1. He said they should pray always and not give up. Because if you don't pray always, the alternative is that you're going to give up. You're going to quit. You lose your sense of hope. You lose your sense of confidence. And if you lose that, guess what? You'll have no joy and you will cease to live faithfully. How many people, I, I can't tell you how many people over the years, have gone through that dynamic and have have quit coming to church, dropped out of fellowship, quit reading their Bible, because why? They quit praying. They lost their hope. There was no more joy. And they quit being faithful. It just works just like that. Prayerful. At the end of that passage, he talks about prayer. He compares this, talks about this this widow who who just continually bothers this unrighteous judge, and finally he gives in, and he says, God is not like the unrighteous judge. God is much more gracious, and he'll answer you. He'll meet your need. The last sentence of of that parable, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus equates praying continuously with faith. If I quit praying, I'm exhibiting the fact that I don't believe. Let Him stretch you. Rejoice in the stretching. He's making you complete. He's strengthening your faith. Somebody say hallelujah to that. Thank you. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Pray in the Spirit. What does it mean to be in the Spirit? That's not a euphemism for praying in tongues, although it's inclusive of that. Those who do, it's inclusive of praying in tongues. But praying in the Spirit is more. Praying in the Spirit is simply praying in a manner that is uh, consistent with the nature and the will of God. He teaches us how to pray. we already looked at the Our Father. Pray this way. That's praying in the Spirit. What does it mean to pray on all occasions? Pray on all occasions is to live, learn learn to live. You have to learn to do this. Is, this has to be practiced. It's not something you do just like that. It's, it's to learn how to live with a continual sense of God's presence in my life. God is with me. Every place I go, I take Him with me. Every word I say, He hears. Every thought I think, He knows. I, I have to be continually conscious of His presence. I have to live my life that way, where everything I see, everything I experience, literally becomes an occasion to acknowledge Him, to trust Him, indeed to surrender to Him. When I'm tempted, I take that temptation captive to Him, trusting in Him for His help. When I experience something good and beautiful, I immediately thank him for that. When I see evil around me, I pray that God will make it right and God use me to that end, if that's your will. When I meet someone who doesn't know Christ, I pray for God to draw that person to himself and to use me to be a light, to be a faithful witness. When I encounter trouble, I turn to God as my deliverer. The point is, we want to get into the habit of living with a sense of God's presence with me every single moment. That's how you pray continuously. Have you ever ever been in this situation where you don't know what to pray or how to pray? Anybody? I mean, something's going on in your life. You have some thoughts, feelings, emotions, all this stuff's going on inside of you, but you, you you just don't know how to frame it in words and give it to somebody or talk about it to God? We just, we experience these kinds of things just in normal everyday life, don't we? We encounter a, a, a situation and, and, and we're speechless. We don't know what to say. We're at loss. And all we can do is <gasps> sigh, groan, moan, heave, cry. Well, guess what? This is marvelous. I love this god accommodates himself even to that human function listen to what he says in romans chapter eight again in verses 26 and 27 the spirit helps us in our weakness now what weakness we do not know what or you can also translate that how we ought to pray But the Spirit intercedes for us with, notice this, groans that words can't express. And he who searches our hearts, that's God, knows the mind of the Spirit. They're they're in perfect communion because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. The point of that is whatever is going on in me, whatever I'm sighing and moaning about, that my mind may not be fruitful of, God, who knows my heart, in tune with the Spirit, the Spirit uses that mechanism to make intercession. Isn't that marvelous? And whatever prayer I'm praying, he tells me it's in direct accordance with the will of God. Can you imagine that? I mean, I could pray all day that way. I just look around and go, huh? Ah, ah, ah! Couldn't you? Because I have hope, I can live thankfully. Because of the resurrection, I can live thankfully. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in all circumstances. Come on, help me with that one. Yes, give thanks in all circumstances. What's the alternative? What's the alternative? Complain? Yeah. Why not give thanks? Why? Because I have hope. Because I'm learning to rejoice in my hope. I'm learning to be faithful. I'm learning to be prayerful. And because I'm prayerful, I can be thankful. Why? I have this confidence. In Psalm 95, the psalmist says, "Let us come before him with complaints, with worries, with anxieties." No, let's come before Him with what? Thanksgiving. That's a sign you're maturing. When you come before Him with Thanksgiving, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In the midst of, in the face of, whatever the circumstance is, Psalm 100, enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Notice this, please. There are two dynamics that are absolutely imperative to our life. That's praise and thanksgiving. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, Although they knew God, they neither, they neither glorified Him as God, nor did they give thanks. In other words, they didn't praise Him, they didn't thank Him. They said they knew Him, but they didn't do those two critical things. The result is, their, foolish, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. I know a lot of depressive people. I know a lot of people who are just a bummer to be around. Why? Why? because they they have not learned this secret. They don't understand that that the resurrection gives them a basis for hope and their circumstances drag them down again and again and again and again. Rather than learning, learning to come to God with thanksgiving. Why? Because I know, God, that you're at work. I know you're doing something here. I believe, I believe you. And I trust you. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 6, we're instructed not to be anxious about anything. Anxious about anything. We're anxious about everything, aren't we? We're anxious about everything. He says, no, don't don't be anxious about anything. You don't have to be. You bring your, your requests. You bring everything to me. You're all your petitions, your, your prayers. Bring them, but bring them with an attitude of, guess what? Thanksgiving. And if you'll do that, the peace of God will guard your mind and heart. Wow. Am I living thankfully? Am I living thankfully? And lastly, because of the resurrection, we can live obediently. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus tells us plainly, plainly, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. How many parents want their kids to obey him? How many parents see a disparity between what your kids say? I love you, Mommy. love you, Daddy. But they don't obey you. They don't really love you. They love themselves. They love themselves more than you. Because if they really loved you, what would they do? They'd do what you said. They would trust your judgment. Say, okay, Mom. Okay, Dad. How many mothers like to hear that? Yes, Mom. First time. Yes, Mom. I'd be doing a lot of funerals, wouldn't I? Mothers falling over dead. John writes this, 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. The man who says, I know him, meaning Christ, but does not do what he commands is a liar. The truth's not in him. Don't, don't say you love Jesus, you know Jesus, and you don't obey him. Don't say that. Because you're a liar. The truth's not in you. It's that, it's that simple. It's clear it's cut. Can't argue with it. Yeah, but Yeah, but I really love him. No, you don't. If you're continually anxious and fearful, you don't love him. You don't really trust Him. You don't really believe Him. It's just, a, it's just some exercise that you're going through. You say you love Him. But the reality is that you'll find yourself not being anxious. I'm not going there because I know my Redeemer lives. In Titus, Titus chapter 2, Paul writes this, For the grace of God that brings us salvation has appeared to all men. Everyone knows. But that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus. Beloved, I'm telling you, when he comes back, he comes back, you're going to say, It was worth it. I'm glad I stood firm. I'm glad I held on. I'm glad I believed, and I never gave up and quit. When he comes back, we want to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. He says, speaking of Jesus, this is why Jesus Jesus died. He says he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Ooh, I love that. Matthew chapter 7. We talked about these people last week. These people thought they had formula down. They had the ticket punch. They were in. Jesus said, Many will come to me, not just a few, many will come to me in that day and they will say, Lord, Lord, And his response to them is, Never did I know you. Away from me, you doers of evil. They thought they were doing what he wanted. They were casting a demon in his name. They were prophesying in his name. They were doing all manner of things in his name. They were doing what they wanted to do. They had their agenda. They didn't know him and know him well enough to be able to say, Lord, your will be done, not mine. I'm not going to presume on anything as I learn to live hopefully and joyfully, as I learn to live faithfully, prayerfully, thankfully and obediently, I'm learning to know His will, to do His will. Mark quotes Jesus' famous words. Jesus said, If you would come after me, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Eh? What? Deny myself? What does that mean? Mean say no to yourself? No. No. But I have my rights. Yes. But don't insist on them. Does that mean I'm to let people walk on me? Yes. Ah! That's not what it means. Oh, well, yes, it is. Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. Are you willing to deny yourself? Say no to your own appetites and wants, your own uh, prerogatives? Are you willing to say no? Say, Lord, not my will, yours be done. Are we going to stand before him on that judgment day and we're going to say, when he says, did you deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me? We say, I thought you were kidding. I didn't think you were serious. I I thought you were speaking in hyperbole. I thought it was just a figure of speech. No. No. You must deny yourself. Be willing to pick up your cross. Cross is not a comfortable thing. Jesus hung on one for six hours. Gagging in his own juices. We're to pick up our cross. Follow him. Implicit in that is obviously hard times, difficulties, suffering, trials. Not my will. Are you willing? Samuel, in the Old Testament, First Samuel chapter 15, addresses Saul, who was the first king of Israel, who had disobeyed God. Samuel says to him, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Beloved, because we reject the word of the Lord, he may reject us. This is why it's so imperative to obey him. But I won't obey him unless I trust him. I don't want to trust him unless I have a real living hope. Does that make sense? And finally, this is a great passage. Solomon, the wisest man on earth, concludes everything by saying this. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing whether it is good or evil. Amen? Beloved, I'm going to suggest to you, He's risen. And because He is risen, we can live hopeful lives. We can live joyfully. We can live faithfully, prayerfully, thankfully, and obediently. Paul says, I can do everything He requires of me. Because he gives me the strength to do it. Question is, will I? Amen?